Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about the lessons we learned early in our engineering careers, including dealing with vendors and when it's appropriate to scream in the workplace. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 89, Early Lessons, August 20th, 2015. Scotch, scotch, scotch. So, Adam, are you a fast learner? Well, I like to think of myself as a fast learner. Usually it only takes two or three times of grabbing, you know, something really hot before I, I stop or something sharp. So you're saying that, that some sort of uh, feedback mechanism uh, aids in the process. I, I, I would I would say that's usually a little bit helpful. Yeah. Usually something some something painful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um you know, sharp, hot, pain, you know, those <laughs> those kind of they, they feed into the, the, the learning curve. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think that that's probably an important part of any engineer's job is is coming up to speed quickly. You know, when we look at at what we learn in school, it was always so much just uh, class after class after class and trying to come up to speed with it. And uh, for many of us, we don't use a whole lot of what we learned in school on the job. But a lot of the important part is how to learn quickly. And uh, so we thought that uh, in this episode, we would talk about the lessons that we learned early in the, uh, in our careers, early in the job. So in the first, you know, two to three years that we were on the job, what lessons do we learn and, uh, how has that impacted our view of the engineering profession? So, uh, how about it guys? Are there any, any lessons that, uh, quickly come to mind that, uh, were sort of new to you and, uh, sort of guided you in your, your, your understanding of the engineering profession as you came out of school? No, I was an expert on day one. Were you? Yes. And by the way, this is not a uh, a truck stop waitress. This is Carmen. He's just kind of lost his voice from the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> There's no guest episode. No guest on this episode. <laughs> That's true. So. Well, we were we were missing Brian last episode, and he's back from from Alaska as well. So we're glad to have him join us once more. Yes. Do the Eskimos have thirty words for solder smoke? I don't. I did not meet any Eskimos. <sighs> I feel like you wasted your trip then. No, I got plenty of fish. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, lessons. I'll, I'll dive in here while I sure. still have a voice. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, one of the things I, I learned pretty quick, or I don't know, maybe I'm still coming around to it. Who knows? Um, if you want to change the system, you, you can't always, to quote a, uh, a f- podcast I like to listen to, you can't always just throw a garbage can through the window and set the place on fire. Um, sometimes you got to do gradual changes. Uh, you know, for example, if you're, if you're having a consistent problem, uh, instead of just always complaining about it and, you know, oh, if only people did things my way, you know, look Mm -hmm. to see what little things you could do to try and improve upon it, whether it's rewriting the manual no one wants to rewrite or, you know, writing an app note or, you know, volunteering and doing a little extra work or training somebody. Right. <clears throat> you can't always just complain and expect things to change overnight, especially in a large organization. Large organizations will outlast you. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's always another Absolutely. new college grad who uh, would be willing to take your job. Yes, and it's, you know, you might as well start screaming at a brick wall. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, you, you write a document here, you uh, volunteer for something else there, then all of a sudden, you know, the right opportunity comes up and you can say, hey, you know, I noticed an area where we can improve. And, you know, instead of just screaming and railing like a 20-something-year-old revolutionary, you actually have data to mm-hmm. back up your uh, your complaint and people are a lot more receptive. Sure. And and did did you have experience doing this, writing up a complaint or trying to, to make changes? No, oh, no, I just have a previous job I never talked about right through a garbage can through the window and set the place on fire. <laughs> okay. Oh, that blockbuster was never the same. <laughs> exactly. They're the reason they went under. It's not even a polling place anymore or a campaign office. <laughs> uh, right. No, but well, I, I think I've mentioned a few times on, a, I don't know, one of the episodes, I was I was a little bit of a hothead when I started and uh, you know, uh-huh. I needed my ego checked once or twice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's hard. That's another thing that's hard to learn is is where the where the emotional pain points are for various parts of the organization. And so there can be things that are difficult for us as engineers or us individually, not not just engineers in general, but just for us as people. And so, for instance, I remember uh, being in a design group and we had no real filing system and no way to keep track of the drawings and no database for the drawings. And this was driving me nuts. And so emotionally for me, this was a big, important item. And, and I actually uh, sat down and started writing code for a database to keep track of all this stuff because I couldn't, you know, nobody was going out and buying a commercial database package. And I knew I could, you know, I could cobble something together pretty quickly that would let, at least allow us to enter the, the names of the drawings and be able to search because all our prints were just basically in one big file drawer. Mm-hmm. You know, there, was, <laughs> there, was, there was nothing to search on stuff. Uh, but at several levels up, you know, the, the vice presidents of engineering are coming through and seeing me sitting out there writing database code, writing SQL code and that kind of stuff. And they're going, uh, why is this one of our design engineers writing SQL code? <laughs> and so f- for them, this was, this was no problem at all. You know, my inability to find a drawing did not rate very highly. And so they were not real keen on the fact that I was uh, diverting my time uh, from what they thought was important, which was redesigning machines to what I thought was important, which was having a filing system so that every time I did design a machine, I didn't have to keep going and, and standing in the, you know, by the file drawer and looking for old prints and trying to figure out, you know, what we'd already designed. So uh, that was, that was a new one for me uh, when I got involved in the, uh, when I got involved in the engineering field was just understanding that what was a pain, you know, emotional uh, pain or preference for me was not that of the organization as a whole. Yeah. And, and maybe just more generally, as, especially as the new guy, especially as a new recent graduate, um, you're probably not as important as you think you are. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I mean, also important, important or good. Both. <laughs> because I often think that oftentimes, yeah, you are pretty important, but you over, I always tend to overestimate my own abilities and try to go off in the corner and quickly fail as many times as I pos- as I possibly can before I present the fact that I now know something about the project. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not that, not that fresh blood can't, you know, bring new eyes to a, a project and, and find something everybody else has missed. But keep in mind, you're also new as well. You, uh, you haven't been around the block. You haven't put in the years of experience everybody else has. So what you think isn't a problem. It could just be, you don't know the system yet. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So, so, so one of the things that I uh, was sort of new to me as I, you know, moved out into the engineering field was there weren't a whole lot of checks on what I was doing. I mean, s- people were kind of generally looking over my shoulder and saying, you know, in general, big picture is Jeff doing the right thing. But on a day-to-day basis, uh, there was not that kind of immediate feedback. So when you're in school, you're, you're turning in homework and somebody's immediately handing it back a week later and saying, you did this right, you did this wrong. Uh, and usually you have tests and exams and they hand it back a week later and say, you did this right, you did this wrong. For me, at least in the early jobs I had, I'd be sent out to the plant to work on some project and it could be, uh, I would be reporting to people, but it, they would basically let it play out until the project either worked or it didn't work. And that was kind of scary. Uh, early on having that sort of power there, you, you felt like you're sort of in, at least I felt like I was in, um, an area where I was just kind of feeling my way along because I didn't know. And that was a little unsettling. Did you guys experience something similar? No, I had the exact opposite impression, which was when the problems weren't contrived Mm -hmm. and it was more apparent that, you know, you do something, you test it, and it works or it doesn't. You know, rinse, repeat. Yeah. Iterate until it works. That seemed like a way more straightforward problem than, you know, being given a arbitrary op amp to design. Mm-hmm. You know, that without really being given a clue as to how to test it. Now, do this all on paper. Don't just go and pull a part out of the uh, filing cabinet throw it on a board and start throwing resistors at it to, you know, understand the nonlinearities or the non-ideal nature of it. Yeah. So, but, but you didn't have the sense that nobody would, I was just surprised that they weren't keeping a tighter rein on me, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. But didn't they give you a pretty well bounded problem? Well, so uh, like one of the early jobs was I, I was working for a company that was making tank transmissions and uh, part of my job was go over to the uh, the plant where these things were being made and look at the parts that had uh, failed inspection and write up rework tags. You know, I was to describe how they're supposed to rework things. And and one of the things that I also had to do was look at uh, these were big aluminum castings, uh, sand castings with lots of passageways, and there was really no way to inspect all the passageways from the outside. And so they had an X uh, X ray booth where they would take x-rays, you know, just like you would people's bones, that kind of thing. And it would come out and they would say, okay, Jeff, you go inspect the x-rays. Well, that's kind of an art unto itself. And they sent me over with one of the senior engineers, you know, like one afternoon for 20 minutes, we went over there and he kind of said, well, you look for this and you look for that. And these light, these light spots are bad and the dark spots, you know, and kind of gave me a quick review of it. And then that was it. And, uh, so I was left inspecting these castings. I don't know exactly how much the castings cost, but I'm guessing, a lot. you know, <laughs> even in those days they had to be, you know, I'm going to guess 20 or 30 grand a piece. And that's before they were machined, you know, now, I don't know, maybe they were less than that, but, but certainly once we got machining time into them, they had to be 20 or 30 grand, uh, or more. And I was in charge of that and no one was coming, you know, no one was, Fortunately, none of them went bad as far as I know, but <laughs> it, was, it was that sort of thing where I was just uh, uh, surprised by how much how much freedom they gave me. And I think that comes with being an engineer. They assume that if you earned your engineering degree that you're bright enough to figure this stuff out. Now, whether that's true or not is a, a different matter, but uh, that was – I guess that sense of freedom was new to me. 
Yeah, I was going to say uh, I've had a a little different um, perspective or a little bit different experience. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of up until, well, actually about a year ago, um, when I'm able to put the two letters PE behind my name, right. a, a lot of um, a, a, very much what I did was examined and um, somebody else was looking over my shoulder, making sure I'm doing Whatever, right now, that doesn't mean, and I guess I take this approach with uh, new grads I work with, you know, I'll give a problem to them and, and let them run off and, and and go after it. But there's never going to be a point where it's critical that I haven't reviewed it and agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very much the same way my su- previous supervisors have been. You know, they'll let me go chase the problem, but they're going to look at it and nothing's going to get, nothing's going to get to production. Nothing's going to get into a plan set until they've looked at it reviewed it, approved it, and agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you felt like they kept a little tighter rein on you than it's, it sounds you might like have it. liked. Well, I don't know about more than I'd like. I mean, it, it's definitely nice having that safety net there. Um, sure. You know, at the end of the day, I'm there to learn for the first several years. I'm not there to – anything I produce is is bonus, um, but I'm, I need to learn. Right. <laughs> you know, more of, a, more of a safety net than a tight leash is, I guess, the way I would have viewed it, or I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Well, another thing I had to get used to was um, not everybody knows the answer all the time. You know, if you if you get a new part back, a new board, a new widget or whatever, you know, it's, it's the first time that thing's been built. I mean, unless it's the, the most minuscule derivative spin ever. Um, right. <laughs> you know, there, at least, you know, in my experience with ICs, it's, it's never the same thing twice. Um, <laughs> old bugs get fixed. So, uh, you know, when someone comes and takes a look, they say, I don't know why that's happening. <laughs> it's up to you to right. figure it out. <laughs> right. They can say, it looks like this old bug we had before, but, you know, the old bugs get fixed and you got to figure out a new way of why that could happen. Yeah. So so did you come out of school with the thought that all engineering problems had been solved? And it was just a matter of looking it up in the right textbook? <sighs> it was one of those things where you knew they hadn't, but... You, you never like know it until you're living it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I've yet to find a good textbook for, uh, yeah, you know, for you know, using a very specific example here. I can't make it general. <laughs> sure. um, current mode uh, switching regulators. You know, there, it's I found so far two different kinds of resources. There's like the IC company app notes out there that explain what the current regulator is and how the control loop works. And that's mm-hmm. a good 10,000 foot view. And right. then what's considered like the Bible of power electronics is a textbook by a guy named Erickson. I cannot read that book for the life of me. It is so theoretical and so math heavy that I'm sure all the information I want is in there, but it's too <laughs> dense for me to just probe it. And I'm somewhere in between <laughs> And, right. and I, you know, like nothing in that area exists where I am. So like, yes, it's a very well-known problem, but the amount of resources for learning to get there seem to be, you know, there's a gap. Right, right. So you you kind of need the cliff notes for that textbook. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, it's it's a solved problem, but it's not solved in an accessible way, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, you know, any app note about, you know, there, there's whole whole textbooks almost written book written by uh IC companies that talk about op amps and there's a, a good one by analog devices I can 
dig up for the show notes or whatever that goes into old topologies and, you know, case studies of op amps and everything. And there, there's nothing like that for converters. And I really wish there was. And maybe I'll write it someday, but I wouldn't read what I'd have to write now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, another thing that's sort of related was you're, you were saying that you're doing something new for the first time. You know, it's always a guess. And, and that was something that took me a little time to figure out was that people in, uh, at the top levels of the organization are often guessing as well. Yes. And that's not a bad, that's not a bad thing in that if you're, if you're the CEO or, you know, chief technology officer of a company and you're trying to figure out, well, where do we, you know, where do we bet the resources of this company? You know, where's, where's the market going? Where's technology going? Where's the economic, uh, situation going? Where are sales going? They don't know. And so they have to guess in order to keep the organization moving forward. They have to be guessing. And I just, you know, I sort of roll early in my career. I rolled in with this assumption that they, you know, they could knew all, they could see all. Uh, and, and so they could, you know, they would, they were always had great confidence. It took me a while to figure out that, that you rise through the managerial ranks because you, you have to exhibit confidence <laughs> in order to successfully rise to the managerial ranks. Uh, Fake but until that you confidence, make it. <laughs> yeah, but that confidence didn't actually mean that they actually knew that there was one and only answer. Um, uh, and, and I think that we also have the, the sort of the mythology that goes on for the entrepreneur, you know, the, the person who makes it. And you read up, you know, you read the write up in Inc. magazine or something. Maybe I'm dating myself. Maybe no one reads Inc. magazine anymore, but, um, you know, you, you read the write up and it sounds like, you know, they were geniuses. They could, they saw the market and they pursued the market and they, they knew all and it, it turned out great. And I, as, <laughs> as being a little older and more uh, cynical, I think luck has a lot to do with it. You know, you happen to be in the right place, the right market, the right time. And uh, you don't see that many entrepreneurs that are uh, uh, successfully turning out, a, you know, a series of new startups that are are very successful. Those who do are probably good at what they do, but but uh, sometimes luck p- plays a lot, a large role. Yeah. Well, there's also a bit of survivorship bias in those stories. Mm-hmm. You don't get to read the other thirty horrible ideas <laughs> <laughs> that failed. Right. Or, or the great ideas that just never took off. You know, some guy in his basement dreaming up and, and tries to get his, his business up and going and, and just can never make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. The unlucky guy who started, uh, you know, his vacuum tube supply company right before the transistor took off. Right. You know, some, someone had the misfortune of being the last guy to start a vacuum tube design company. <laughs> not that there's yeah. still not some niche one out there now that I don't know about, but yeah, it's not making billions. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so for instance, that during this uh, past week, uh, I had uh, a couple Christmases ago, I had purchased for some family members the uh, the Hexbrite flashlight, and I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was a it was a uh, it was a flashlight that uh, was rechargeable, and you could also program it. It had a little Arduino system inside, and so you could hook it up to through a USB port. You could charge it through the USB port, but you could also program it. And so you could program it to, you know, for how many, you know, to, uh, how many flashes you wanted or, or if you, if you held the button on the back of it, it would, it would start to get brighter, brighter, brighter until you released the button. And then if you kept holding it, it'd get brighter and then dimmer. And you could, you know, you could just do all kinds of neat programming with it. Uh, 
And it was it was launched with a uh, a Kickstarter campaign back in uh, 2011, but it just didn't you know it didn't make it. And so uh, um, my uncle who uh, who I had given to one of these flashlights to me reported that he was looking for a replacement battery and, and had gone to the website and it had shut down. So you know there's a guy that has a great idea, uh, makes a go of it. And it just doesn't happen. Does that mean it wasn't a great idea? No. Does that, it just means the market wasn't ready for that idea at that time. Yeah, exactly. Or, or maybe his success was gated on the launch of, you know, some widget or part that just never took off either. And that, that ruined his whole business model then. Yeah. Yeah. He learned some, some valuable insights about second sourcing or something. Right. And, and I, and just having, having programmed it, I would say that one of the problems was that, you had to be somewhat knowledgeable about pulling together uh, the right code and libraries in order to program it, even if you're familiar with with Arduino programming. That's a lot of work for a flashlight. Exactly, and now I think that was a because the people who had it, they you could find YouTube videos of people doing all kinds of neat things with the flashlights, but for your average person who isn't familiar with with you know Arduino or coding, it was just too much. In that case, it was just a flashlight, and it was a premium priced flashlight. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's so many reasons something can fail. It could be the the perfect product at the perfect time in the perfect place, and you could be bad at sales or bad at marketing or bad at accounting or one of, you know, a hundred other things that are not technical, not engineering, and you can, you know, that's the reason it failed. Yeah, you call it a Zoom. Yeah. Right, so so even big companies make uh, make errors. Sometimes we could say. <laughs> well, no, actually, I think that was not necessarily a case of an error. That was, you know, a brand management and a, uh, you know, it was a period in time when my, I think people were unwilling to buy stuff like that from Microsoft. So it didn't matter that it was actually a very well reviewed and well received product. People just scoffed at the idea that that particular company was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so that, so that's another, uh, it, it makes me think of sort of another lesson that, that I learned early on, which was that not all companies are the same. And by that, I mean, we can talk about culture, that sort of thing, but just size companies. So small companies, startups, they can easily disappear. You know, they're just it, any mistake when you're starting up and you've got limited cash and limited resources and limited time and you're done. And big companies, they built up a lot of inertia, you know. They're big, big steamliners, and so they're they're tough to turn. They're they're tough to change to do new businesses. But boy, they've got a lot of inertia, and they can they can survive a lot of hits that smaller companies just can't uh, can't tolerate. Which is another way of saying they can make a lot of horrible decisions. <laughs> yes, that is another way of saying it. <laughs> and and but and they often do right. You know, you, you, you have a big organization with lots of people involved and, and, and uh, so lots of, of, uh, people trying, trying to guide the, uh, the organization and bad decisions are got to be made. Windows ME, Windows Vista. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were just saying nice things about Microsoft. I, I think the world of them, but at the same time, those were horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Windows 8. Every Android phone. Oh, um, I was going to say something I learned early on. 
uh, probably the best education you're going to get is by shooting the shit with somebody who's been there, mm-hmm. who's had all the horrible experiences. And, uh, I mean, if it's possible take notes, <laughs> I mean, the people it's it engineers like to share war stories, like to share experiences. And, you know, for whatever reason, engineers also like to, there's that narrative of the things I tried and they didn't work. And then the, Oh, the one thing I tried and it worked. Mm-hmm. And you actually then hear their debugging strategy. There's more there than just the one thing that worked. Right. And so is it, how, how much is it is technique and how much of it is attitude or philosophy for debugging or for, uh, pumping those well, around I, you for information. Uh, I I mean in the in the stories you hear when when somebody shares these you know these war stories, do you, do you think it's, it's what you're gaining is mostly technique or is it just attitude? Intuition. Intuition. Okay. It. Uh, to me, I often hear I hear scope. I hear that you know you're looking for a millivolt signal as opposed to something down in the microvolts. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're looking for a mechanical. I mean, something's happening. You know, you should probably think mechanical before you think about layout, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, simple things that would tell you if it's a software issue or if it's a hardware issue. Or right. just give you a good intuition. Where's the first place you should look based on the phenomenology? Um, it turns a little bit into an episode of house. (laughs) In other words, you get two or three pieces of information. Where's the first place you're going to stick the needle or the scope probe? Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say all best techniques I've picked up there. I could say a, a lot of the intuition I've picked up there is as much from listening to people go through their hard fought solutions as much as my own hard fought solutions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a lot of then pattern matching. I mean, the more patterns mm-hmm. you're exposed to the, the easier it is to find something that matches it. Exactly. Okay. Well, and a segue off of what Brian was saying, mm-hmm. I think there's another benefit to that. As he said, engineers like to, to share war stories and it, it's building that camaraderie, um, integrating yourself into the, into the company um, and, and helping you figure out, okay, this person knows about this thing. So when I have a problem on this that I can't figure out, maybe they can help me. Mm-hmm. You're, you're never going to know everything. But if you can know who knows something, you're 95% of the way there. Sure. And that person has to like you too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, get good at ingratiating yourself to people. Yeah, well, that, that, but that's always tough. I mean, there, there'll always be those those people that are open and welcoming and make you feel like you can come ask any question, and there are always those that are a little more gruff and uh, kind of steer you away. So, uh, I didn't say it wouldn't be difficult. Yeah, right. Well, I I do think uh, it is important that uh, if you're going to ask questions, that uh, you go ask senior engineers as opposed to your junior engineering buddies, if you're, especially if you're a big organization, it's always easier to go ask somebody at the same level as you because you feel like they're going to be less judgmental because they know less. But I think if you're really looking to educate yourself, go, go ask, go ask people a couple levels up. Uh, you may, you may get, uh, um, 
you, you know, you may have to deal with a more difficult conversation, but I think you're likely to learn more. You, you know, and I would even think it may seem like a difficult, difficult conversation, but mm-hmm. I think uh, most people that are a couple levels up are willing to appreciate that you're asking them for their opinion, their thought. You're you're willing to admit you don't know it, um, and you want to get their their perspective. Right. So it may not appear like that in the conversation, but I, I think in general, um, it helps build that uh, positive image of you. Right. So. So I'm thinking if you go ask somebody for help like that, it's always nice to sort of couch it in terms of how this will eventually be of benefit to them to spend time with you to do it. I mean, I, I suppose the uh, the most direct one is, hello, senior engineer, could you help me understand this so I don't have to keep coming and bothering you with the same question over and over? And maybe that's enough. Have you, have you had any experience sort of uh, – with how you make this introduction and how you couch your questions to make it more appealing to the senior engineer? Give it to them as a problem description. Okay. You know, don't, Such s- as? don't say, you know, Hey, please help me solve this. You know, just give them the, you know, bare description. I'm, I'm baffled because I have tried X and X. Here's what I'm seeing. Any thoughts? You know, right, and see if it triggers anything. Yeah, but but in implicit in what you've just described is you've actually done some background. You haven't just said I'm looking at the problem and I'm stuck. Come bail me out. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, but you also can't be lazy. I mean, I don't. <laughs> I honestly don't think you should ever go ask anyone anything before you've tried something. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's as simple as. You know, I burned up this. I mean, assuming that it's not a $10,000 board. I tried to run this test and I burned up this board. At least at least you tried something. You're not just, you know, coming to somebody with a box full of parts and going, hey, make this work. <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> I think one thing that would piss people off, at least it pisses me off, is when somebody doesn't even bother to make an effort. Right. Like, did you even go? Like, somebody asks you a question, and you literally are thinking to yourself, "Did you even Google that?" Mm-hmm. You know, I say that too sometimes, but it's, "Did you read the data sheet?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's something different because I'm equally bad about skimming through pieces of the data sheet and oops, forgot to hook that pin up. But you know, if you throw your hands up and just say make this work that's you're not asking somebody to be a partner you're asking somebody to do you know your job for you right uh, you know I'll, I'll throw in kind of one exception to to maybe what you said sometimes you don't know how to approach the problem but i would frame it in a manner of you know i got this problem i really have no idea where to start can you point me in the right direction and mm-hmm. and maybe they can say well you know maybe you should look at this part of the data sheet and then, yeah. you know, go off and do that and do your own research and come back when you, you figured something out. Um, but don't come with a, you know, please make this work. Um, unless that's, I mean, unless it's completely outside of your, your area of expertise and never will be. Um, but, you know, like I wouldn't take a, I'm not going to go and, and, and start trying to figure out how to design a bridge. I'm going to call up the bridge experts and say, here, I need a bridge. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's an unrealistic scope of a problem. Yes. 
I mean, it's also their n- job. N- nobody, nobody's <laughs> ever giving somebody a problem like that. No, you know. But so I, I think there's a certain a certain level of merit if you're given a task that is very difficult or you've never done before mm-hmm. to kind of take your first shot at it. Like really, I mean, yes. How do you? Uh, even if you have no clue how you're supposed to get a particular measurement or, you know, find the defect in a particular part, at least, you know, because when you struggle a little bit, it's not just demonstrating that you tried to people, uh, mm-hmm. people that you're ultimately going to ask for help from. It's actually gaining a bit of insight into um, the nature of the problem and the nature of the tools around you. Mm-hmm. And also check your data too. Even when you, if you let's say you think you get the right answer, you know the first time you ever make a measurement, like I don't. I mean, I always knew not to trust the reference on a scope, but I honestly did not know all of the ways in which it could possibly become, it could possibly foul a measurement that I was trying to make. Um, I've actually. What was this on a scope now? What's that? What what can't you trust on the scope? The reference. Oh, the the one kilohertz reference. No, 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 no. The no. Uh, your your uh, ground lead. Oh, oh, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's ever tried to look at the rising edge of a phase node in a switching regulator will tell you that. Oh, absolutely. Trying to get trying to get the nanosecond resolution you need to properly look at that is a pain in the butt. I I you know tr- try to look at try try to look at how a uh, lightning pulse is being shunted through your device and sends sixteen hundred amps through the you know little what twenty four uh, twenty four gauge reference wire. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that's difficult. It too. fails quickly. <laughs> yes. You know. Um, yeah, but I think in general, uh, you're. I think you said this in the past, Brian. Was that uh, your attitude is don't trust your tools. Yeah. And I think that, I think that relates not only to electrical devices, but mechanical devices as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. If, if just because your gauge reads, you know, you've got plant air and you're reading 60 or 80 PSI, that may not mean that you actually have 60 or 80 PSI. The gauge might be bad. Uh, there might be other problems. Um, you know, you, you have to bring in some sort of, uh, calibrated, uh, uh gauge to, to check these things. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that always we've talked about this in our troubleshooting episodes is it's always the assumptions that get you. You assume that a certain set of circumstances are what you're working under. And it turns out that that's not the case. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I, I mean, but to return to the point, it's, I cannot emphasize the value of struggling with a problem before going to talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. I think that's really when you learned. Right. Yeah. And when you're, especially when you're new, you know, you, you struggle and you, you go to someone more experienced and they refine your struggle until it becomes less of a struggle. And, you know, you you iterate through that enough times and it it sounds pretty basic, but that's, that's how you learn. You know, if you go to the, the gray beards five times and each time they ask you to check, you know, two or three key things out, well, by the sixth time you're going to say, Hey, I got this problem. It's not these three things you always tell me to look at. It's something new. And now you know a little bit more about the system than you used to. Mm-hmm. You're, you're getting that intuition that we always talk about. You know, and ultimately, I think the very beginning of your career is, and if you want to look at 
competing with your peers and trying to advance your career, assuming you want to stay in engineering. Um, it's a race to acquire the most information, the most experience. And, you know, I see Jeff, you have, you know, don't take a job for money, take a job you, you love right. uh, early on. But, you know, and not just that you love, but something that's going to challenge you, something that's going to give you a disparate series of problems that, you know, somebody, if they took a better paying job or an easier job, may never see. Because that's ultimately going to determine the value for the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say that, um, or at least that's my taking, theory. Yeah, <laughs> and, and but but I will say taking uh, if you're gonna take a if you're gonna take a job for money, early in your career is a good time to do it. You've got you know you've got uh, probably student loans to pay off. You can start uh, putting the, putting aside money into a savings account for later in life. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons if if you're going to do it and take a job for money, do it early in your career because the likelihood is you're going to change jobs three or four or five times during your career anyway. Uh, so at least get yourself on a good financial footing and then in your second or third job can start looking for what it is you, you think you really want to do uh, long term with your career. Yeah. So uh, here, let me suggest another one that, that uh, I sort of learned, which was when I was dealing with uh, vendors and suppliers, that they had sort of a different take on our relationship. Right. <laughs> and so for me as an engineer, my my only concern was gathering information. You know, tell me about your product. Tell me about the specs of your product. Tell, tell me how to integrate your product into my machines or my systems. And that's what I wanted was information. Now, from their standpoint, they appreciated they were willing to supply this information. But if they spent much time supplying this information to me, there were sort of it was sort of implied that I was going to buy something at some point along the way. And, uh, so, you know, <laughs> it was sort of, it was sort of a surprise to me at some point when some of the vendors got a little upset and said, Hey, are you just screwing around with me? Or are you ever going to buy anything? Quit asking questions and asking us to do stuff. You know, there, there's a relationship here. You ask us questions, we sell you stuff. And, uh, so that was, that was something I had to learn early on. Yeah. They, they, uh, don't really tend to want to give away things for free. They like getting paid too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, re I remember we had some machine shops around us that were, uh, we use frequently for quoting jobs. Uh, and you know, a couple of the shops just gave it, they said, Hey, we're done. You know, we quote jobs and we get about one out of every 15 or 20 jobs we quote. That's not, it's not worth our time. It's like, Oh, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I guess you're absolutely right. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I've definitely gotten to the point. Anytime I'm talking to a vendor, I, I usually say I have the intention on buying from somebody. I can't guarantee it's going to be you. Mm -hmm. I'll, I will include your name on the list of people who get requested for quotes. Um, usually they're, they're at least, you know, being I work for government, they're pretty understanding that that's our process. I can't pick a vendor. Right. It, it's low bid, but, um, yeah, they, some some of them that um they don't particularly care for that. They want me to to agree to give them money before they're going to give me any information. So I can't validate if their product's going to work for me or not. 
Sounds like they don't get to bid on it. Well, I can't stop them, but I can't, you know, I can't put my word in for them to get on the list. But, but I think, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, a, just a different viewpoint on life. It's like, we're going to enter into a relationship and whether it's the best thing for my company or, you know, whether it's, you know, as an engineer, I tend to look at it, want it to be optimized in all, you know, all forms and all ways. And I think if, if you're selling, you know, stuff and you go, just, Jeff, pick something. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And if you're going to pick it, pick it for me because we have a relationship here. Mm-hmm. I've come in and I've told you about my product. You've asked questions of me. You know, we've got a relationship. Buy something. Yeah. I've also I've also found that uh, I got a lesson from my friends in sales. Okay. Which was a, somebody in sales will love it if you're just outright honest with them. If you're If you just tell them, you know. I'm not looking to buy right now. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure that they know that they have no obligation to try to close on a deal. Look, look, I'm just fishing for information here. Mm-hmm. I, I just need to know this one piece. Don't worry about what it means in the future. You know, because then they know, hey, I don't have to follow up. I don't have to add him to my calendar to follow up on to make sure that, you know, they liked my part. So, so definitely promising something that might, you know, trying to dangle something out there that that's really not very likely is a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, if you start going around and and uh, saying, "Oh yeah, no, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy N- next week, next week," um, they're gonna they're gonna get a bad taste in, in their mouth for you and working with you, and um, that just that's a bad relationship. That's a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the other thing that does happen is salespeople talk to one another. Mm-hmm. They kind of they kind of move in the same circles, and so you you can get a reputation, uh, whether deserved or undeserved, with with the people that are coming in and and trying to to uh, supply you with goods. So that may or may not be a bad thing, but uh, uh, just be aware that if you if you irritate one salesperson, you may uh, the word may get out, and and you may get a bad attitude from many of them. At the same time, being honest with vendors, I've had plenty of them who have been very, very happy to give me information. Sure. Um, And, you know, they'll give me their, maybe not their secret data sheets, but yeah, the the non-posted information. It's like, yeah, here's the information. No big deal. Um, And help me, you know, explain things that I may not understand on their, the way they uh, present things. And they're happy to do it because it might lead to a sale someday. Right. And by and large, they will try to sell you the exact opposite processor that you need. <laughs> it's just a general rule. And so that's based on what? That that they, they're just trying to sell what they have, or it just seems like Murphy's Law that every time you need one thing, they want to sell you the other? Well, it's, you know, when you have a relationship with these people and they know your product, they know your design cycle, you know, you – a project is going through qualification and they come in and they're trying to sell you on the next arm processor. Mm -hmm. You know, we make a processor decision once a decade. Okay. You know, I'm not, we're not changing code bases. We're not changing processors. You know, what's the purpose of this conversation? And it, it sounds petty, but you have no idea how many times I've, and I won't mention companies by by name, but 
there are some pretty crappy processor companies, and I'm, it seems like I'm always being pitched the crappiest. <laughs> I just I wonder if the margins are highest on those. Yeah, but the the you know the when you're you're trying to sell to a new product, you're trying to get your processor into an into a new uh, into a new company, a new client. What it, you know? Well, what have I, you got to lose? Let's just go. Let's go pitch Brian, and and it's it's no skin off our back to. Well, pitch him and get him to say no. Well, typically the way these work, though, is you don't have, you know, you don't have Texas Instrument or Atmel coming or Microchip coming to talk to you. You've got mm -hmm. whoever their regional reps are, whoever has that that line card in that particular region, mm -hmm. and um, which is often multiple distributors. So you'll have somebody come in who's also distributing the processor that you're already using and they'll yes. try to talk you out of using the processor that you're using to use this other crap processor. Yes. But, but is that what they get paid to do? I don't know why. <laughs> if you're already buying products from them, why would you want to change? Like, <laughs> why, why would you want to open up that door? Okay. But, but it depends on whether they're thinking long-term or short-term, but, that's so, true. so if you're selling various products, I, uh, a couple things I can think of. One is various companies will offer incentives during various periods. So they'll go, Hey, you know, during the spring, we'll be offering, you know, an extra 2% on uh, everything you sell in this, in this region. Uh, and so now there's a, there's incentive to go sell brand XYZ instead of ABC, that type of thing. Oh, I'm sure that's the way it is. I just find it particularly hilarious that, I mean, it's not like a switching regulator. I mean, you know, while that's an intense redesign, it's a bomb change and a layout change. It doesn't involve an entire tool change, uh, tool chain change mm -hmm. and a code base change. You know, it takes a week and a half to relay out and to order new boards. It could take years to, you know, migrate from one processor to another. Right. But again, it doesn't cost them much to give, to pitch it to you in the, in the hopes that maybe during a weak moment you go, okay, let's do it. But who does that? Well, spam works. Yeah, that's true. For somebody, I mean, somebody must be making money off of it. I assume. I don't know. It's but it's kind of like kit planes or kit cars. I can't imagine that's a impulse purchase. Mm, okay. Or maybe I just haven't worked for the cool enough companies where that is a <laughs> impulse purchase. <laughs> I don't know. The, the The other thing sort of related is that uh, there can be a great deal of bad feeling generated if you talk to the wrong person about buying a certain good in a certain region. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I ran into this several times where – you know, I would want information and instead of – sometimes there's a local rep and there's national reps. And uh, if the company had – say our company had worked mostly with the local rep and I didn't know that and I was calling and all of a sudden I got a hold of the national rep and I'm now I'm working through the national office. Now, typically they're supposed to feed that information back down through the uh, – to the local rep. But sometimes there's several local reps and they, they feed it into somebody else. And so all of a sudden the 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 uh, the company that's mostly selling to to the my employer uh, comes in and discovers I'm buying from a different company, and and they get very upset that I've not gone through them. So 
I don't know how you learn that other than just sort of trying to keep in touch with your purchasing people and asking these types of questions. But uh, that was a new one to me was that uh, uh, there could be some bad feelings generated by not working through the the uh, the correct rep, I guess. Well, there's a good rule in general. If you're looking at buying something, talk to purchasing first. Mm. That is a good rule. There, there are so many rules related to purchasing. Um, it's probably worse, worse for me than, than many, many, but buying something for yourself is easy. Buying something as a company or an organization is hard. Yeah. And you want to make sure you don't say something to a vendor that's wrong and give them a bad, uh, a wrong impression of what, what's going to happen or how this works. Yeah. Heck, I've gotten my hand slapped before for even talking to a vendor that I didn't know was blacklisted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course that's nowhere in a, uh, a technical document to be found. You just, it, it's sort of lore that you have to know about the company. Yes. And you know, there's no spreadsheet. Shouldn't say blacklisted. There was a bad relationship. Yeah. Well, those, and those things can happen at any level of the organization, you know, <laughs> Oh, yeah. it, sometimes it's, it's, you know, the, your VP or somebody up, you know, higher levels of the organization had a bad experience with the ABC company. And so when, when the purchase orders come through, if they have to be signed by someone at that level, they get rejected because 10 years ago they had a bad experience. The ABC company sells all the liquor in North Carolina. So I bet a lot of people had bad experiences with them <laughs> or wonderful experiences. It could go either way. <laughs> Probably wonderful ones that turn into bad ones the next morning. Probably a few of those too. What? So let me circle back around real quick. So when we were talking about asking for advice for senior engineers, a, a thought I had was so as not to be too much of a, a burden or an irritant to them is uh, one of the techniques I always use is about five or 10 minutes into the conversation. If it looks like it's going to be going much longer, I, you know, I look at my watch and say, how are you on time? And that gives them the opportunity to say, you know, Jeff, I'm, I'm really busy today. Maybe we could do this some other time or I, you know, uh, we can talk for five more minutes, something like that. But, um, anyway, I don't know if, if you guys have ever used that, uh, that technique, but I found it useful in trying to give someone who's providing me with information and doing me a favor, a way out to say, Hey, you know, we need to be wrapping this thing up. That's an interesting idea. I've never really done that in the middle of the conversation. Usually it's been more at the beginning of, hey, do you have a few minutes to, to help me with this? And and I'll lots of times have people say, no, can you come back in an hour? Yeah. Or can you yeah. can we talk tomorrow? Well, I, I guess I meant it in the terms – sometimes you just run into somebody yeah. and the conversation develops and, and so there's not immediately this, this emphasis on time. But I try to be aware if the conversation starts to go at all uh, to ask them that just to give them an out if they need it. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a great idea. Of course, that means to look at your watch, you actually have to wear a watch. And I don't know whether you young guys actually wear a watch. So, A what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a cell phone on your wrist that can't do anything. <laughs> oh, okay. See, uh, the, there's the Apple Watch, which is coming back. I don't have no idea if any young people are buying them because I'm not an Apple person. but Or a young person. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I think it did reasonably well. Also, this is rare. Mm -hmm. I think you also have to be careful about in. You have to be careful about who you inv invite into your problem. 
Uh, Jeff, have you ever had the issue where you raise the question, show somebody some data, and all of a sudden they start co-opting your problem? Yes. Then you have two problems. Yes. The problem and that person. So, so, so there's two ways that can go. One is that someone can start taking credit for your idea and what you've done. I mean, they basically, they're, they're taking over. The other one is, and I thought this is where you're going, Brian, is you mentioned a problem or a concern to somebody and they all of a sudden run to a lot of other people and, you know, scream bloody murder and it becomes an issue that really wasn't an issue. And, it, and you, but you didn't yet have time to really analyze it. And all of a sudden you're being called into meetings to say, we hear that this is a big problem. All of the above. <laughs> I, I, I would also say I've, I've even experienced a very rare circumstance where I was given bad advice so that the person could be involved in the project. Hmm. And then they told me that at a later date as like, Haha, <laughs> you know, they trying to think of how I can obfuscate all of this in case somebody hears it. Uh, but 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 the but the point, Brian, that I think that you're making is that people sometimes have motives yes. that are not purely technical yes. or purely problem solving. They have you know personal motives that, uh, I guess, personal agendas that they're trying to advance. Yes, and also you know I think the big lesson out of that one particular event, which is you know regardless of what any advice somebody gives you, it's still your problem, and you know your butt is still in the line if you can't solve it. <laughs> yep. You, I, I think a lot of this all wraps up into the, the bigger issue, which we've talked about a few times of, you know, office politics and getting along with people um, that, and I would say, you know, rightfully so it is a huge thing to adapt to in uh, the first couple of years at an organization, getting to know, uh, getting to know the people, getting to know the the right people to talk to, you know. There's oh, this person here sometimes plays the politics game in in this way, so you got to be careful when you approach them, um, and, and things like that. But you know, really, if you're going to succeed in in most organizations, you've got to know how to, or at least be aware of the political game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about that in the uh, the last episode. Uh, and I, I, you know, as I as I edited through the audio file and was listening to it, uh, I was talking about how I just didn't understand the politics, and I guess that the uh, and I felt like I was maybe naive about it and, and didn't know how to talk about it. And I guess the point I wanted to make was what was new to me as as a young engineer was I thought all decisions were made on a technical basis. I assumed that that somebody would come down and say, "Hey." You know, this makes sense in order to, uh, into, in order to speed up the production on our, on our manufacturing line or to reduce the cost of this, of this uh, component. And that isn't always the case. And that was the part that really frustrated me was all of a sudden people were making decisions based on which made them look better to the uh, vice president or which made them get a bonus that really was good for them, but detrimental to at least seemed detrimental to me to the organization. And, and that, that was the part of it. Uh, that was really confusing to me as a as a newbie into the uh, the engineering world. Ah, uh, politics. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Well, so here's a uh, another, I guess for more for people that are in manufacturing, but I've been in several manufacturing organizations, and that is, uh, that is if, you, if there's something uh, related to manufacturing, the answer is not likely to be found at your desk. It's likely to be found in the shop, on the manufacturing floor. Go, go talk to the operators. Go talk to the machinists. Go, you know, go out to where the problem is because uh, it's not going to find – you're not going to find the answer in a textbook. You're not going to find the answer usually on the internet. Go to Gemba. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. That was uh, Aaron Spearin. I think he was the one that we talked to about that. Uh, I believe you're correct, but I'm trying to save my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd say that doesn't apply only in manufacturing. Um, you know, something I've heard multiple times in my field, you know, is to, to become a better designer, spend some time in construction. <laughs> I remember one time, uh, this was early on, I had totally hosed up a, like a 30 or 40 conductor wire harness. Just the way mm-hmm. I pinned out the connectors on each side. You know, I think I'd reversed it. And my boss actually made me personally go and repin the entire thing. <laughs> you know, I never made that mistake ever again. <laughs> right. Right. So do you guys have any advice on uh, uh, two of the things that, that seem to be important are uh, taking notes about what's going on and, and keeping those records uh, and also, you know, things, you know, sketches and drawings, making comments uh, for later references to, to what you've intended when you make design decisions. Do you guys have any good suggestions about how to do that? Tangential. Never send emails. Hmm. Ever. Okay. And, and Email, e- Emails are a written record that have a life well beyond whatever you might intend it. And I think young Engineers, especially those of us that grew up with the internet and interacting with our peers over, you know, be it IRC or just SMS or whatever, I think we're way too comfortable being um, not professional with people or saying things that we aren't concerned about being taken out of context. And the best advice I could give somebody in terms of controlling information is almost never read an email. And, and so what is your preferred method of recording information? Oh, well, I mean, uh, lab notebooks are good. I'm starting to get more and more into electronic lab notebooks. I love one note, but, uh, I often use my iPhone to get screenshots off of scopes these days because I'm too lazy to hook it up to the network or put a USB drive into it. Yeah. But, uh, eh, it is what it is, (laughs) but the, uh, right. So, so if you're, if you're making these comments then in your lab notebook, that's for you. What if you need to share this information with others is your, so my attitude was always, if I want somebody to understand the information, but I don't want a written record, I'm going to either go visit them in person or I'm going to call them. Exactly. But, but with the preference of younger engineers not to take phone calls and, you know, so texting leaves a, a permanent written record. Writing emails leaves a permanent rec- written record. What's your suggestion? Go and talk. To them. Just track them down. Yep. Okay. 
it, it might seem inefficient, but I mean, until you've, until you've had somebody high up in an organization, you know, bounce back an email to you that you didn't know was forwarded, forwarded, forwarded to them. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's just an experience you're going to have to trust me. on. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so the advice would be to always write emails with the expectation that it's going to be read by everybody. Or in a courtroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been pounded into my head over and over again that, you know, you might say something flippant like, um, you know, this machine is a death trap or whatever. You might mean that in the most pejorative sense, like I, or this car is a death trap, you know, not, not meaning that actually anybody was going to die, but that you're frustrated with this, it's minor yes. difficulties. Yes. And you know, those, those kind of emails, the lawyers will basically do control F on the, on the entire outlook server mm-hmm. and look for your email that somehow is an indictment of the company and its processes. Right. Maybe the, the general rule, I mean, I think email is an extremely powerful tool and I use it a lot for communication of things. And there are instances when I do want that. So if it were to go to court, that email is there to take to court. Oh, absolutely. Because then it's, it's documented. This is what I said on this day. And there, there's no, no arguing, but fully expect anyone can read that email, including that lawyer. Yeah. It, it, and, and two things pop in my mind. One is relationships change over time. And so, you know, you, when you share inside information, you want to be really careful who you're sharing that with because relationships change. Uh, and, and maybe that person, five years from now will not feel the same way about you that they do now and and may use that information against you. And the second is people change employers and any email that goes to that person will remain on that employer's server. And you never know who's going to come in and buy out that company or new management comes into that company and, and makes use of that email. Yep. Yeah. Well, and, and I think a lot of people, I think touching to Brian's point, email is a formal written record just like a letter and it should be treated that way it's not i am yeah i've actually i have wanted to have somebody rep i mean and this is very get off my lawn so if you lose respect for me i understand (laughs) it but i was actually in an email exchange with somebody where they were screwing things up and they kept responding to every other email lol Mm-hmm. And I've I've never wanted to reach through a computer and strangle somebody before like that. Because <laughs> not only did they not uh, impress upon me the gravity of the situation they were creating for us, they almost seemed like they didn't care. You know, just the way they conducted themselves. And, but I could also say, I mean, I wasn't not so old that I would have explicitly felt that way. I also recognize that's just the way they talk. That's just the way they communicate through email. And it just made me even angrier because they should know better than to do that. Mm. That sounds very much like a a communication that should have been done through an IM instead of uh, an email. This person was a vendor. Oh. Yeah, I couldn't quite go to their cube and, and, you know, scream at them. (laughs) 
By the way, don't scream at people in industry. 95% of the time, that is the correct answer. There are exceptions. So what, so what's the exception? So let me, so for background, I've, I've had a couple of, I've had a couple of conversations in which somebody was actually, you know, voice raised, like you know, screaming going on. And I don't think in any of those cases that was particularly useful to the conversation being had. I, I understand being, I understand people being upset and frustrated, but I don't think it advanced the conversation. So what, uh, under what circumstances do you think it's a good idea? Uh, usually it's, it's safety and urgency. Okay. Um, mostly on site, you know, things like there's somebody who doesn't see something coming, get out of there. Or, um, you know, I've had people where they absolutely could not be. Um, and it's, you need to get not here right now. Um, usually it's because either they're going to, something's going to break mm-hmm. or somebody's going to get hurt. Okay. I said, that's that 5%, maybe even 5% is a little bit, uh, a little bit strong. Um, but yeah, it's not a it's not a yelling match. It's a this needs to be done right this second, or something bad's going to happen. Okay, makes sense. Um, so kind of to roll back to uh, what Brian was saying about how uh, um, younger people don't tend to want to do phone. Um, I think there's a lot of value in in just realizing there are multiple ways to communicate, and. There's different reasons for different approaches and different communication methods are appropriate in different circumstances. Telephone is a very, very powerful tool, as is email, as is IM, as is going and tracking the person down, um, as is scheduling a meeting. And these are all tools that um, I think younger engineers need to, to be familiar with. You know, IM and email are easy. The others are just as important if not more important, to make sure you're you're comfortable using. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, now you raised one um, there, Adam, that I hadn't thought about, and that is meetings. And so, eh, I've been out of the big corporate world for a while, so you know, but probably my perspective is a little stale. What what? How do you guys feel about uh, scheduling meetings? Do you schedule meetings, or when people? At, ask you to attend meetings, any guidelines on either, either scheduling them or preparing for meetings? I've probably got a little different perspective than, than most of the other people here. Uh, I go to a lot of meetings. I schedule a lot of meetings. I delegate a lot of meetings. Um, that's partly the nature of my position, partly the nature of my organization. Um, I, I said, I spend a ton of time in meetings uh, they can be extremely productive if the right people are in the room prepared to talk about the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some advice to, to younger engineers. When you send up, set up a meeting, let the person know what you want to talk about so that they can be prepared. Um, and make sure that you've got the right people there. I mean, meetings can be particularly powerful if you need a decision and you need a certain number of people to talk about a specific thing. And one, a one-on-one conversation is not going to get the conversation done. You need input from three or four different people, and you need somebody to make a decision. Getting all those people together to talk about it is uh, can be an extremely effective way to get that answer when you need it. Um, you can also be effective at, how do I put this, cornering people. Okay. Um, some people are extremely busy and have a... Um, it's hard for them to get back to things, get to things. And if you set up a half hour meeting, 
at least most people I know feel a little more obligated to attend. And so you've got that half hour to get that, get whatever you need from them, you, whatever communication you need to do with them. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than them, oh, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it um, once I'm done with this other thing, and it turns out being, you know, three four weeks down the road. Right. Right. So, uh, Brian and Carmen, I have a suspicion you have a little different uh, uh, feelings on meetings and and uh, experience with meetings than I do. I haven't scheduled a meeting in three years, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I do go to meetings, but I don't see a lot of reason. I mean, I work closely enough with my colleagues that I can just walk into their office and or they walk into mine and we can reduce it to a two-second consensus-building moment. Um, it's usually only if somebody from the outs- from outside of the company is coming in that I have a meeting these days. Um, but, I mean, I've worked at companies where you have a meeting a day, two, three meetings a day. Mm-hmm. And they're largely pointless. <laughs> yeah, other than informal board reviews and stuff, I don't uh, I don't schedule too many meetings. But when I do, I try to follow the uh, the back to work policy that if no action items come of the meeting, why did you even have it? So yep. I got a question for you, Carmen. Yeah. Do you split up board reviews and schematic reviews? Um. No, because our schematics are usually because we're because because our schematics are designed around the not exactly the same circuit, but relatively minor changes from chip to chip. Mm-hmm. Um, the schematics don't really change. You know, if you look, you're like, oh, look, there's our DCR network, there's our compensation, there's you know the little tiny LDO we use on our eval board for whatever rail. Um, but uh, so there's really not much schematic to review. But we, we do do tear the board layouts apart quite a bit. See, and I was going to say, I, I find sch- schematic reviews to be some of the most useful meetings I've ever had, or just general design reviews. Where I, whereas yeah. I find having a room of a dozen engineers looking at a you know twelve plus layer circuit board to be almost an exercise in futility. Yeah. See, I'm in a, I'm in a kind of a niche there because I'm always doing the same circuit a million different ways. The schematic always looks the same, ah. but the layout's always different. So, and because it's just one buck regulator, it's way easier to get, you know, eight guys focusing on, okay, is this the optimal way to put the FETs? Is this the optimal way yeah. to get phase copper into this node? Is this the optimal way to route the sense lines? I'm not, yeah, I don't have... 12, 14, or who knows how many different circuit blocks to connect. Now, if excuse me, table 12 needs a little more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so let me, uh, let me propose one final lesson. Uh, Sounds good. We don't want to retread too much on previous episodes. Well, so we're on episode, what is this? Episode 89. I think at this point, 89. it's going to be a little hard, not at some point to retread a little bit. That's true. But, uh, but you so, know, we got to get them back views up so we can keep the checks rolling. In. Yeah. The tips ain't working very well tonight. Yeah. The flapjacks ain't going. Right. Well, so uh, uh, again, a reminder to our listeners, we have a contact page on the website. If you want to, uh, if you've got some episode ideas, some topics you want us to talk about, we're always open to uh, ideas and concepts and proposals. So 
feel free to send us an email and let us know what you're thinking about. Ask for Donna. I'll get you a good seat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so the one I'll finish one uh, is as a young engineer, you're full of vim and vigor. You want to change the world and somebody asks you to do something. And the point is to, I think, think about it real carefully and not promise too much. Uh, and I think if, if you've, you've been in, into enough situations, you learn over time that if you promise the world, the moon and the stars, uh, that it works as if the moon and the stars all align and you're willing to work, you know, several late nights, but you can't do that continuously because sooner or later something goes wrong and, and you're going to wish that you'd promise just a little bit less. Do you guys think that's reasonable advice or is, am I just being too grumpy and cranky? No, that's very reasonable. You could quickly get yourself into a, uh, if you give a mouse a cookie situation otherwise. Well, I, I think that's good advice for anybody. You know, over, um, under promise, over deliver. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which man, which managers hate. <laughs> yeah. But, but as a, but as a young engineer, you want to please, right? And you, you see it and you go, I think I can do this. And, and I think there's a real tendency to, to promise maybe a little too much too soon. Yeah. No, no, that's not saying only do the bare minimum to get by. No. But yeah, in, in general, you don't want to say, oh yeah, I'll get you those 50 things and your dry cleaning by <laughs> close of business tomorrow. That's, that's not realistic. You know, I, I have to manage field guys' expectations all the time, you know, when they'll come back and say, oh, my God, so-and-so is going to spend a gazillion dollars with us. We need all this shit by yesterday. Mm -hmm. oh, you know, okay, well, I mean, if it really is a gazillion dollars, I can get you this by the end of the week. Anything else is gravy, and we'll see about the rest. Right. I, I found it interesting that you, Brian, you said uh, managers hate that under-promise, over-deliver approach. Mm -hmm. They want you to deliver exactly what you promised. When you promised you would have it done, because if you over if you over deliver, it's kind of like uh, oh, the best example of this was uh, um, watching stress tests on Boeing's wings, and uh, there's a uh, all the videos are on YouTube, so you can watch when they do these. Uh, I think it's a static load test on the triple sevens wings and they're basically ending it up and applying tons and tons and tons of force and it's you know it has this massive deflection and the entire company of the ceos they're watching the test and what they're watching for is two things first that it gets past exactly the design point you know what they claim it's rated for and then that it snaps within almost a second of getting past there and you're like well why is it, you know, why aren't they excited every extra ton that they add that it doesn't break? And somebody explained to me, well, that meant you over-designed it. That means you put too much material inside of it. That it could have been lighter, it could have been cheaper. You know, they want you to deliver exactly plus or minus X percent what you claimed you'd deliver. Okay, I, I see that. Um, yeah, I guess my take has been more of you know, when is this going to be done? Um, I'd rather give it to somebody two weeks early than than two weeks late. Yeah, but you also don't want your bosses to feel like you're sandbagging them, too. No, no, absolutely not. Um, I find more often if you expect it to be that two weeks early, and that's really what you're expecting, usually it's about right on time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
and multiply all your budgets time pi, times pi. Yep, absolutely. And that's both uh, dollars and uh, time. <laughs> now we just we just need an academic study, right, to uh, to validate that uh, that heuristic. <laughs> all right. Well, we've probably uh, we've probably consumed enough of our uh, our audience's time, our listeners' day. Uh, with these uh, these early lessons, if you have uh, if you've been listening and you have some lessons you think we should add, or maybe uh, lessons that would make a good future episode, please let us know. And uh, otherwise, we'll look forward to sharing time with you again in a couple weeks in the next episode of the Engineering Commons. Giddy up! All right, have a good evening, guys. All right, bye, guys. Evening. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.